continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. Let me read our text for us this morning. It speaks of whose son is the Christ. It's a question that Jesus asked his questioners. It reads in verse 41. Matthew 22, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, Why, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He said to them, how is it that, and they said to him, the son of David. Verse 43, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So, This morning we see here in our text, just a a reminder, this is probably the most important question that can be asked. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? The world's never lacked for any ideas concerning the answer to that question. People have come up with all kinds of different ideas of who Christ was. But today in our text, Jesus, in no unwavering terms, answers that question for them. And he does it rather boldly. See, many cults teach that Jesus was a prophet of God. Some cults teach that at least he was maybe a great teacher. But they also say that he was not the Savior of the world, that he was not divine in any way. And they don't consider him to to be divine in any manner whatsoever. And that's really a battle line for us in Christianity. If you're going to draw a line in the sand, you better draw the line where what people say about and what they think about and what they believe about the central figure in Christianity, that being Jesus Christ. If you don't have that right, then nothing else is right. Everything else is meaningless. Now, remember where we're at in our text. This is Wednesday of Passion Week. Friday, he's going to die. He'll be crucified. And he has this conversation with the religious leaders in the temple. He cleansed it the previous day, and he came back and he taught the people. And they sent him, the religious leaders of the day were trying to trick him, they were trying to catch him up. And all the way back in chapter 21, you remember verse 23, when he was doing miracles and doing all these things, and when he was teaching, they asked him a question, and they said, by what authority do you do this? Who gave you the authority to do this? And if you look at that text back in Matthew 21, he never answers a question. 
He just doesn't answer it. But he gives them three judgments in the form of parables, and we looked at those. And basically, the summation of all those says that you're shut out of the kingdom of God, and others are going to take your place. He says this to the religious leaders of his day. And by that response, they are just incensed. They're infuriated. They can't even see straight. They're ticked off at him because he has a power that they don't have. They've seen that. They've seen him perform miracles after miracle. They never argued that they were authentic. They just said, well, you do it by a different power. You don't do it by the power of God. You do it by the power of Satan. They were upset because he taught differently from what they taught. He taught the true word of God. You think that the religious leaders would be stewards of the word of God and take it and keep it and preserve it as they were told to do by God, but they didn't do that. They took the word of God and they perverted it. They made it something that they could browbeat the people with. They took the word of God and they made it into religiosity. And so they were upset at him because he taught contrary to them, because he had a power that they didn't have. But I think most of all, they were upset because simply he was more popular than than they were. And that's what they made their bread and butter. They made their livelihood on popularity among the people. They would go out dressed in their formal religious attire, their robes and whatnot among the people, and everybody would stand, oh, here comes a rabbi. They were just impressed. And now he pronounces these three judgments upon them, and they're ticked off even more. Their hatred is just coming out of their pores. And so they go back together, and they group together, and they think of a way to discredit him. And they bring up three questions. And we've looked at those, and you can review those online or get the CD, whatever. But their point in asking the questions there in Matthew 22 were simply to discredit Christ. First one was a kind of a political question dealing with do we pay taxes or not? Second question was a theological question dealing with the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they came and they asked him this weird question that probably always stumped the Pharisees. See, the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't agree on that. The Pharisees agreed that there was a resurrection, and so the Sadducees were always fighting with the Pharisees about this. And they probably asked the same question of Jesus, thinking, hey, it always worked on the Pharisees. They always walked away stumped. Let's ask him. He'll look bad in front of all these people in the temple. Well, that's not the case, because he said, you're silly. In verse 30, he says, in the resurrection, you neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, depending on how your marriage is, that may be a cause for mourning or a cause for rejoicing. I don't know. That's between you and your other. (laughs) But he says in verse 31, For the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what is said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. comes right out of the Torah. That's all they believe. They just believe the first five books of the Bible. 
And so he used that to confound them. They were astonished, it says. And then the third question they tried to trick him up, trick, trick him up on was, which commandment out of all of our commandments, which one's the greatest? Surely this will catch him. Well, it didn't. And the people at the end of this question and answer time between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders and Jesus, the people were even more fascinated by what Jesus was saying. So it was actually working in reverse. They were trying to trick him up. They were trying to make him look bad in the eyes of the people. And he came out looking even better, more fascinating. They heard all these three parables on this Wednesday They've asked him three questions, and basically he's about to end their little show here in the temple. He's going to put an end to it. But there's one more question, and it doesn't come from the religious leaders to Jesus. It comes from Jesus to him, to them. And the purpose of this question that he's going to ask is to make very clear to them who Christ is, who the Messiah is. He's not speaking here in the first person. He's not saying, who do you think I am? That's not what he's saying. The purpose of the question is to have them tell him who the identity of the Christ, the Messiah. Christ means chosen one, anointed one. That wasn't Jesus' last name. He wasn't Mr. Christ. It was his title, Messianic title. See, and you have to understand, the religious leaders and even the religious people of Jesus' day, the community, they just made this assumption that the Messiah would be this human, military, political leader that would come in and free them from all their woes of Rome. And he had to have all the the credentials and all that stuff. But he was a human leader. Very much what they're looking for today. They're looking for someone that will what? Give them peace, right? And when the Antichrist comes in and says, hey, I'll give you peace. Sure, build your temple. Do this, do that. Oh, they'll sign right up. Thinking this is it. And so the Lord confronts them in this Crowd is gathered around. It's got to be massive because the Passover season, everybody's coming there. And the temple is basically their, their center in their community. And so it all begins here with a question in verse 41. It all begins with a question in verse 41. A direct question. He says, says there, while the Pharisees were gathering together, see, they're still huddling. They're still kind of trying to come back from him answering these three questions in a way that just blew them out of the water. And so rather than just quit and go away, they get back together because, they're, remember, their task is to trip him up. Their task is to make him look bad. Their task is to show everybody that he's false. He's a sham, He may be more popular than us, but he shouldn't be. And they're trying to paint that scenario for everybody there. So they came up with this idea. We're going to get together, and they're still huddling together there in verse 
41. They're probably perplexed. They're probably scratching their heads thinking, okay, what do we do now? We look worse now than we did before. Well, verse 42 Verse 41 says, Jesus asked them a question. Now, it's important to understand that this question was not asked of Christ. He wasn't saying to the religious leaders, well, who do you think I am? That's not what he was saying. Some people read this and say, oh, he's just, who is the Christ? He's talking about him because that's his last name. It's not his last name. He's saying, who is the Messiah in your eyes, in your mind, according to your religious views? Who is he? He wants them to ask that question. He wanted the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he wanted them to focus on what they already believed about the identity of the Messiah. He wasn't trying to teach them anything. He was just asking them a simple question. Who do you think the Messiah? What do you think about the Messiah? God's promised anointed one. And then specifically, he asks this question, whose son is he? In other words, from what Jewish line was he to be descended from? Whose son is he? Now, they're probably feeling pretty good about themselves right about now. Because they thought, we know the answer to this. Every Jew knows the answer to this. This is simple. This guy must be a fool to think that we don't know the answer to this question. See, up to then, they're probably a little nervous, thinking, what's he going to say next? But boy, as soon as those words roll off his lip, you can just see him. Oh, oh, the son of David was their answer. Of course we know that. Yeah, son of David. Everyone knew that. Probably puffing their chest out a little bit. Standing there with a little bit of swagger. Because they were convinced that the Messiah was no more than a man. That's what they thought. The only identity of the Messiah they took seriously was that he was the son, humanly speaking, of David. And this is taught throughout the Old Testament. The scribes had long taught in Mark 12:35 it says the son or the Christ is the son of David. So they answered affirmatively. They answered perfectly right actually. However, their answer unfortunately was not complete. See, this is something that they grew up learning. This is something that they knew for sure. I mean, even in, uh, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, uh, uh, through the prophet uh, Nathan there, it says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. It's verse 12, 13. Who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he will... He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He goes on there in verse 15. My loving kindness of 2 Samuel 7 shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed 
from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So he's trying to help them understand that you're not answering my question completely. They answer in the affirmative that he's the son of David, and they knew that. The Bible taught that over and over and over again. Psalm 89 makes repeated references to the Messiah as the descendant of David. It says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. I have found David my servant. Well, who's he talking about? It's a messianic psalm. He's talking about the Messiah. I will, it says there, I, I will establish his descendants forever, his throne as the days of heaven. Even in Amos, it was prophesied in Amos chapter 9, verse 11, in the day I will raise up the fallen booth of David, the wall, and wall up its branches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Over and over again, the messianic title for the Christ is the son of David. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, it gives a rather lengthy reading on this, verses 21 to 25. Ezekiel 37, 21 to 25, it says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land. On the mountains of Israel, and one king will be their king for all of them, and they will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And my servant David, it says, will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land which I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince, what's it say, forever. What's not talking about human David? He went not talking about that. He's talking about the Messiah. Starting at the millennial kingdom and sweeping into eternity, David's greater son, often called David by extension, is the Messiah. In Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, he says, When I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land in the days of In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. And even throughout the New Testament, you see it over and over and over again. Remember when people were being healed, even here in the book of of Matthew. The two blind men in Galilee, what did they do? They cried out and they said, have mercy on me who? 
Have mercy on us, son of David, right? That's what they said. When, the, when he rode in on Palm Monday there into Jerusalem, the people were laying down branches, and what they were saying? They were saying, Hosanna, King of David. All right? Have mercy. And you see it over and over and over and over again. And so it's so consistent in the Bible when it speaks of the son of David, it's speaking of the Messiah. And he wants them very clearly to understand that because they didn't understand that. They're looking at the Messiah as, well, he's the son of David, humanly speaking, that's it. It ends there. He wants them to get the second half of that. That there's not only a human aspect to the Messiah. They were right. Jesus did come incarnate, right? He was here as a human being. Even as Elise taught yesterday, a wonderful message. She spoke of the incarnation of Christ. See, that's that's something that, that had to happen. But that's not all that happened. See, if you just think that Jesus was a man who lived and was a great teacher, you only got half the equation. They only had half the equation. They had man's viewpoint. They answered in the affirmative, but they answered from a human perspective. And so many people do that today. Yeah, he's the son of David, humanly speaking. That's, he's coming from the line of David. Well, Look at what Christ says in verse 43 when he asks this question because he wants to point out to them that their answer was deficient, but he wanted to point out to them an infinite reality. What does Scripture claim? I know you're saying this, the son of David, but I think Scripture says a little more, and I'm going to share with you what it says. That's what he's saying to them. He's going to give them proof that the Messiah was more than just a human leader, more than just a political head, more than somebody that's just going to come along and free him from the the burdens of Rome. And so Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, he goes to one of the most messianic psalms there is, 110. And that's where he gets this quotation from. So he says in verse 43 there, it says, He said to them, and he asked them this question, another question, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? What he wants them to understand is that why would David, if he's his son, if the Messiah is going to be David's humanly speaking son, what son... What father would call their son Lord? doesn't make any sense. Especially when you dig into the language here. The term kurios in the Greek, that's the word Lord we use. It's the equivalent to Adonai in Hebrew. And it's one of the most common designations for deity in the New and Old Testament. Now, the name Yahweh, Jehovah, was considered too holy to be spoken. So they always substituted the word Adonai. 
And in many translations in your Bible, you'll see that word Lord printed with all caps. That's what that means. When God is called Lord as a title, the word is always printed in those kind of lower case capital letters. And it's in the Hebrew text, Adonai. Well, what's going on here? What's, what's Jesus' argument here? What he's saying is if the Messiah, the Christ, is no more than just a human being, the human son of David, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Now, first of all, we have to understand what, what Jesus is outlining here. If you look at, at Psalm 110, that's where it's coming from. But the first proof here that the Messiah is more than a human being is, see, some critical folks even today say, well, that's not really what he meant. You know, he was just saying that. He, didn't, he wasn't really, God didn't tell him to say that. It's interesting that Jesus says here, why did David say in the Spirit, not in his own spirit, it's not a, there shouldn't be a small s there, it's a capital S, it means in the Holy Spirit. Why was God moved, why was David moved by the Holy Spirit to call him Lord? Who, who would call their son Lord? Doesn't make any sense. And they're probably thinking, they're going, okay, what's he talking about? Where's he going with this? And he says in verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord, <laughs> he quotes Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. See, first of all, he wanted to make very clear to them, and even clear to us, that David, when he said that, he wasn't just making this stuff up. He was speaking by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's funny sometimes when people take verses that maybe they don't like or doesn't fit into their agenda, and they, well, I, I, don't, I don't think we really need to understand it that way or take that part literally. We don't have that freedom, beloved. We take the Word of God as it's written to us in the original languages, and we try to understand it the best we can. And then we apply it. But so many times today, people take the application and they say, okay, I want an application to come from Scripture. Let's see, I'll pull this verse out, and I'll pull this verse out. And now it finally means what I wanted to say. That's not the right way to do biblical exegesis. You're reading stuff into the text. That's why we teach through the Bible. Because when we teach through the Bible, we get the whole thing. It's not me up here saying, oh, you know what, I'm really ticked off. You know, people need to serve more. So I'm going to do a study on servanthood. Let's see, what can I do to make the people feel guilty? (laughs) Any pastor could do that. Anybody could do that. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to teach the Word of God in the way it was given to us. And so that's what Jesus does. He reverts right back to the Word of God. And he says there, how does David in the Spirit call his son Lord when he says in the text there, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. So he's clearly pointing out that David was speaking by the authority of the Word of God, by the authority of God when he penned that psalm. And then secondly, he wants to point out to them that David wrote Psalm 110. See, a lot of critics today say, well, we don't believe David wrote it. 
See, because they're trying to deny the deity of Christ. And to deny the deity of Christ, you've got to tear down Psalm 110. That's where they go. But it's a Messianic psalm, and he clearly wrote it, even though he's not necessarily mentioned in there by name. That was accepted even by them in their religion of the day. And then the third thing he wants to get across to them very clearly here is that the Messiah is not only human, but he's also God. There's also a deity aspect to it. Now, when he says there, the Lord said to my Lord, that first word, Lord, is Yahweh. The second word is Adonai. And so it's important to that we, that we kind of understand that. The idea of what he's saying is, the Lord, Yahweh, said to David's Lord, Adonai, what did he say? He said, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under a footstool, under your feet. Now, it's very interesting to me that if people want to attack Christianity, where do they go? They attack the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We had a woman here at the Prophecy Conference that was kind of stirring it up with Dr. Hawking Friday night. And, uh, you know, she actually used part of this verse. And he had to get rather vocal with her. And uh, she was part of the oneness movement, whatever it was, and and she was just, you know, heretical in her understanding of Scripture. And he just was simply pointing that out to her. But she kept on going back to, well, they, they can't. He can't be God. Well, what David says here, I'm sorry for the typo in your, your uh, <laughs> I just looked at your outline. It's, that's not what the, the third point is. So the, the third point is, is basically that he um, uh, not only was speaking in the Spirit, he not only wrote the psalm, but that three should be up there above uh, the word uh, Yahweh. That he was actually deity. That, that God was pointing out, Jesus wanted them to understand that the Messiah was not just human, but deity. That's the third point there. And the reason he did that is, look at what he says. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, who's going to sit at the right hand of God? I mean, that would be blasphemous to think a human being would be there. The Messiah would be invincible because God, it says, puts his enemies under his feet. What's that mean? It's a figure of of subjugation. It's a figure of, of rulership over that individual. When a defeated enemy was brought in into the ancient mines and in their, their monarchs and stuff, the king would take them out, and when they're defeated, they'd put their foot on their neck and slay them, showing basically that they have conquered that enemy. And what God is saying here in Psalm 110 is that God said to God, the Son, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. I mean, it's, it's very 
profound what Jesus is teaching here. What he's teaching is that the Messiah is not only human, but the Messiah will be God. And they, they couldn't, you know, the Sadducees were probably really freaking out because they thought anything to do with the, the spiritual aspect was bad in a, in a way. They just dealt with the here and now. But even the Pharisees were probably having a very hard time with this. I mean, you think at this point, somebody would have said, well, wow, okay, so you mean the Messiah is going to be human and God? Human and deity? Is that what you're saying? Because that might explain how you were able to do all these miracles <laughs> that you've been doing, that we've been seeing you do. That might be able to explain how you've been able to teach the way you've been teaching. That might explain why you're from where you are from and how you've gotten here. And maybe you think that somehow they would put the pieces of the puzzle together and conclude that, wow, you know what? You basically fit all the elements of the Messiah. Whose son is he? David's son. He's in the lineage. Now, if you stop and you you think about what Jesus is is sharing here, he shares all the, the attributes that God has. I mean, he knew things before they even were spoken. What's that? That's omniscience, right? Go to this other village and you'll find a cult and you'll do... The, how do you know that? It's not like he was, had binoculars and he was spying on the guy with the cult. How do you know when the religious leaders would come up to him and, and start to ask him, he already knew what they were going to say. He condemned them with their own words. He knew what his disciples were thinking. He knew what his enemies were thinking. He didn't need to hear anyone bear witness concerning man. John 2.25 says, For he knew himself what was in the heart of man. Now, I don't know about you, but when you stop and you start to think that God knows everything, God knows what you're thinking about right now. Wonder who's winning the game. Wonder what I'm going to eat for lunch. Yeah, we had a good time yesterday, but boy, I'm really tired. When's he going to shut up? See, God knows all that. You can sit there and smile, but God knows it. God knows why you're here today. God's omniscient. God's also omnipresent. He, he's everywhere. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew 18.20, wherever two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. It's not talking about a prayer meeting there. It's talking about some discipline issues. But how could he be there if two or three here and then two or three are over here? That doesn't make any sense. How can you be two places? He's God. The New Testament consistently presented Christ as the Son of David, the Son of God. Over and over and over again. The gospel message that Paul preached. Over in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, look at at verse 2. He says, Beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning who? His Son who was born a descendant of David, 
there you go, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul himself understood that Christ, Jesus, was the Messiah. Paul admonished Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. Over and over and over again, we see this. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 2. And this fits well with our communion time that we'll be sharing here in a few moments. Philippians chapter 2. Look at what it says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Look at what it says. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not commit, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under earth. All beings and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amazing. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Bernard Ram wrote this. He says, If God became incarnate, what kind of man would He be? He gives basically six answers. We would expect Him to be sinless. We would expect Him to be holy. We would expect His words to be the greatest words ever spoken. We would expect Him to exert a profound power over our human realm. We would expect Him to perform supernatural abilities we would expect him to manifest the love of god beloved of all the human beings who ever lived jesus christ alone met all of those criteria whose son is he he's the son of david but he's also the son of god he's the very god who created us. Now look at the response. Rather inappropriate. He says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? How can this be if you just believe he's a human being and not deity? Verse 46 says... No one was able to answer him a word. They couldn't argue with him. There was nothing more to say. 
Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Yeah, I bet. You know, the biggest enemy of the gospel, the enemy that looms large in the hearts of human beings when it comes to understanding who Jesus Christ is and understanding that He is a Savior and that He died in your place for your sins, the biggest enemy that stands and blocks your access to His forgiveness is pride. It's simple pride. You know, the Pharisees and religious leaders were dumbfounded. At this point in the conversation, they didn't know what else to say. And these are astute men. They, they're not, you know, people just fell off the apple dumpling truck or whatever. They're, 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 they're very educated people in their religion. They're scholars in the area of religion. And they just stood there. They, they, they didn't know what to say when Jesus was done. They had no response at all. They were humiliated. But they were not humbled. It's a big difference. They were silenced, but they were not convinced. They were simply dumbfounded. Maybe part of them was impressed, but they were still unbelieving. I mean, here is this uneducated, unordained in their mind, unorthodox rabbi from Nazareth, of all places. And he just shuts them down. Pride and self-righteousness has always been the enemy of the gospel. And it even continues to be the enemy to this day. Do you remember over in John 4, we read the story, we'll close with this, of the Samaritan woman who met Jesus outside the well. Do you know that she was the first person to whom Jesus directly revealed his Messiahship? She was the first one. After she commented that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Can you imagine? That woman trusted in Christ herself and immediately went to her village and witnessed to others. And many also believed, it says. But most of the Samaritans did not believe. Today, they're still there. Fewer than 500. Still looking for a Messiah who had already come. Just like those of the Jewish faith, they're still looking for the Messiah. They haven't put it together. We need to pray for them. We need to pray that God would open their hearts. That God would give them the ability to understand who the Messiah is. We saw their response. There was none. They were just dumbfounded. What's your response 
What's your response to who Christ is? What's your response to question, the question Jesus asked you this morning? Who do you think I am? Because that question, all of eternity weighs in the balance when you answer that question. In Matthew 26, 63, the high priest speaks from his place of authority and he talks to Christ and he says, I adjure you by the living God, tell me whether you are the Messiah or not. I'm going to look at this down the road. And Jesus said, yep, you said it. I am he. It was a while after this time that Jesus actually said that. And they wanted him to say that so they could charge him with blasphemy and kill him. She was the first person, the Samaritan woman, who Jesus revealed his Messiahship to. What's your response? Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God. God in a bod. God incarnate took on flesh. The God-man came into this world to die for us, to die for man. And God gave him victory over sin and hell and death. See, he's the perfect Savior. He's the only one out there that lines up with all the prophecies concerning the Messiah. But you still have to deal with the information. The choice is still yours to make. Let's bow our hearts and prepare our hearts for communion. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, in a way, it's kind of sad how this ends. These religious leaders' hearts were so hard, they couldn't see who Christ was. They didn't want to believe They probably left dumbfounded. Most of them did. Figuring out other ways to discredit Christ. But Lord, there's always hope because as we looked at last week, the scribe that came and asked Jesus, who was, what is the greatest commandment? At the end of their conversation, Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. And that gives us hope. That gives us hope for our relatives who are steeped in their religiosity. Who we pray for and pray for and pray for and nothing seems to happen. That gives us hope for those who have yet to come to Christ. God is a gracious God. God is a loving God. But God is also a just God. He had to take on human flesh to take the place of men on the cross. There's no other way for Him to be our substitute. So Jesus came, perfect God, perfect man, dying as a man for men, as God for God's sake to defeat sin. And we know that believing in Him will give us eternal life. And you can believe in Him this morning. You can open up your heart to Him even now.
if you've never opened up your life to Christ. But this morning you sense a stirring of the Spirit of God in your heart. I pray that God would give you a vision, a new vision, a new perspective. And that you'll respond affirmatively to who Christ is. Jesus doesn't need our to be patronized. He doesn't need to be patted on the back. He's David's son. He's David's Lord. He's the son of man, the son of God, nothing less, nothing more. And coming to him with anything else other than that is just simply inadequate. But if you believe in your heart this morning, you can receive him as your Savior. He applies the forgiveness that he paid for on the cross to you, to your sins. He washes them away. He gives you everlasting life forever. What a wonderful thing it would be to join the body of Christ as a new believer this Christmas season to fully understand what the gift of God means to us, His people. Lord, we pray for each heart here. We pray that You'd move and work pray for Christians here, Lord, that we would evaluate our own lives as we come to your table. Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to remember how you have paid the price for our sins. And Father, we ask that you would bless our time of communion, bless our worship as we prepare our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.